Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always, astronomer Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? I'm very well. And you? Yeah, not so bad. Still plodding on. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, let's plod along through a few topics today that uh, uh, people are talking about uh, I, I do visit a lot of uh, astronomy websites and uh, and blogs and, and things like that. And some of these topics have been pretty hot of late. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about is the Drake Equation, uh, which has been around for a while, but they've recalculated, uh, recalculated it because there's new data to add to the equation. And the Drake Equation is about the probability or possibility of life beyond Earth existing in the universe. So it's it's just an amazing topic and one that uh, has been kind of in the imaginations of humanity for, for eons. Just look at the number of science fiction films that have aliens in them, for example. Uh, we're also going to talk about a fossil meteorite that um, has made the news and we will be focusing on uh, attempts to uh, get to the moon by private companies, but the problem is there are no regulations, so that makes it quite difficult. You would think it would be the opposite that no regulations, let's just do this. But no, it's not that easy. But first, Fred, let's talk about Drake Equation 2.0. Now, first of all, um, just enlighten us with a bit of an explanation of what the Drake Equation is, because I'm looking at all this algebra in front of me and I'm, you know, I'm ready for a warm bath and a pack of razor blades, to be honest. But <laughs> <laughs> what does it all mean? Uh, <laughs> I hope it's never that. <laughs> no, no, that was probably not the right thing to say. <laughs> never, yes. mind. never mind. When it comes to that kind of calculation, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. down there with the frogs. <laughs> but uh, well, the, the Drake equation. Well, it goes back to actually, I think it's uh, the 1960s when it was uh, first postulated. Um, um, by uh, Professor Frank Drake, uh, who basically came came up with it. Um, so what it, it's a statistical equation, Andrew. So it, what it does is it takes all the unknowns that uh, would lead to the existence of um, uh, of intelligent life that could communicate with us, and separates them out. So uh, it starts off with the, re it's really fundamental stuff. I mean, it's very soundly based on astronomy. Starts off with the rate of formation of stars within the Milky Way. Uh, in other words, how many stars are being produced, you know, throughout cosmic history. Then it uh, multiplies that by how many of those stars have got planetary systems. So that's a fraction. Another fraction, the average number of habitable planets in each of those systems then another fraction, fraction of those planets that give rise to, rise to life, 
the fraction of those life-bearing planets that give rise to civilizations. And finally, you multiply it by the fraction of those civilizations that beam out evidence of their existence. And, and the final thing is the average length of time during which they're able to do that. And by the time you've taken all this stuff, these, um, uh, I think there are nine uh, parameters in there, uh, eight parameters in there. By the time you've taken all those and, and done the statistics, you get a number that tells you how many civilizations there are likely to be that we could communicate with. Okay. Um, the problem is most of those numbers are ones that we really don't know the answers to very well. Mm. Um, but as time has gone by, we've with modern research in the it's 55 years ago since that equation was put together uh, we've actually pinpointed uh, many more of them than than frank drake had at his disposal and in particular um, we now know about the, the rate of star formation in the galaxy we know that um, most stars have their own planets uh, because that's you know been demonstrated uh, by principally the Kepler spacecraft that you and I have spoken about before, the yes. spacecraft that's been staring at 100,000 stars and looking for uh, pl planets uh, crossing the disk of their stars and dimming the light from, from the star. So uh, because of Kepler and other uh, uh, work that's been done on, on planet, uh, planet determination or planet discovery around other stars, we, we now know that there seems to be at least one planet for every star. So mm -hmm. that really pins down that number. Um, and then you've got to say, well, how many of these orbits in the habitable zone of their parent star? And we still use a fairly naive idea of the habitable zone, that it's that region around a star where liquid water can exist uh, on the surface of a planet. Uh, it some, seems that something like a fifth of those planets are in the habitable zone. And that actually produces a number of, um, you know, the, the, the number of stars uh, that have habitable planets in, well, you can do it for the whole universe or you can do it for uh, basically uh, for the galaxy, but it turns out that it's a large fraction. It's, uh, you know, if you've got uh, something like 400 billion uh, stars in our galaxy, for example, it means that something like a fifth of those have habitable planets, which is a very large number still. Yes. Uh, a, 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 a sort of, yeah, it's, 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 it's a you know, it's a significant. Well, it's eighty billion. It's it's a lot. Yes. Yeah. I I I mean, I'm reading numbers here that suggest that um, based on this this reworked equation, that there may be as many as sextillion, four sextillion <laughs> habitable <laughs> planets. <laughs> that's a number in, in I've the, never heard of before. Yeah, that's in the whole universe. Yeah. Yes. Four times 10 to the power 21. Um, uh, the rest of the universe is probably a bit ambitious to worry about yes, uh, because there's only our galaxy that's, uh, since it takes, you know, radio signals 100,000 years to cross from one end of the galaxy to the other, uh, you, you could probably lose interest when you start looking beyond our galaxy because you're talking about geological timescales. Mm. Um, so, so those numbers are pretty impressive and they are now, I think most um, astronomers and astrophysicists would take those as being reasonably well established uh, so but then it gets you know that the, the next step is where it starts getting uh, much more speculative because we don't know um, you know basically how uh, how easily life forms is it inevitable that life forms if you've got a habitable planet 
um, the, the 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 idea of um, uh, whether once you've got life forming, do you get an intelligent civilization emerging from that? We think that that, that might be the fly in the ointment. A lot of astrobiologists seem to be suggesting that microbial life, really sort of crude single element, uh, single cell types of life, uh, might actually be fairly common. But the step from that to uh, evolution of vertebrates and then the evolution of intelligent species may be incredibly rare. Some people uh, suggest that you need such a specialized set of circumstances for that to happen, that you're suddenly looking at very, very low numbers indeed. Well, it's in incredibly rare on Earth in some places. Just look at the European Cup. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but more, more to the point, though, uh, what they're saying in, in regard to this equation is that they also believe, uh, based on the data that they've collated, that a lot of these uh, theoretical intelligent civilizations have already been and gone. They've existed in the past. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the, the bottom line is, um, and, and this we should uh, highlight that the, this is research being done in the University of Washington and the University of Rochester, um, and basically uh, are saying, okay, if you look at the whole universe, um, they, uh, the, if, if, if you've got the kind of statistics that we've just been talking about where, um, yes, that, that might, be, might, might be not relatively common but not impossible for civilizations to emerge. Mm. Uh, if, they, uh, if they last for as long as we've been around, uh, and that's roughly 10,000 years as a species, um, even doing these calculations, all of the other civilizations are already extinct. Uh, and the and new ones won't evolve until after we've ceased to exist. This is within our own galaxy. It's not in the universe as a whole. So yeah. this is the 100 billion, 400 billion stars of our galaxy. So um, their, their bottom line is for us to have, and I'm quoting here, for us to have much uh, chance of success in finding another contemporary active technological civilization, on average, they would have to last much longer than our present lifetime. So what they're saying is the only way we're going to find uh, other civilizations in our galaxies, our galaxy, is if they have a very long period of existence, not just 10,000 years or so, but, but much longer than that. So the, the, odd, the odds of us finding and even communicating with some other civilization uh, within our existence, let alone our lifetimes, is uh, pretty remote. Yes, that's right. Um, the, there is, um, you know, there is a comment uh, that uh, I, I like very much. Um, you, the the, um, the authors of, uh, of uh, actually not the research, but a report on the research, uh, they, they suggest that, um, yes, it's just a numbers game, really. We're pulling some of these numbers out of the air. But the quote is that on a deeper level, it should get us thinking about what it takes to make a civilization sustainable for the long term. Mm. so that we can stick around long enough to make our own mark on the cosmos. Yeah. And that's we're not, a very we're not doing a very good job of that at the moment. Uh, well, that's right. We, uh... mm. one, one more point to wrap it up. Uh, we, if you take one piece of the equation, that is um, all the planets where we know there is intelligent life, you come up with one being Earth, and if you multiply yeah. anything by one... 
that's all you get. So yeah. that, that's right. in my mind, pretty well stops the equation in its tracks at this point. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, um, look, there are, there are, I think, uh, Andrew, and I've, uh, we, you and I have said this before, we are within um, a couple of decades, I suggest, maybe even a bit less than that, of having the technological ability to detect uh, life, uh, and not just life in our solar system, but life um, on planets of distant stars. Um, because we can, we've got this new generation of big telescopes which are on the horizon. Some of them are being built already. The ELTs, the extremely large telescopes, they will have the, the capacity to actually sense the atmospheric contents of planets of other stars. And that opens up an entirely new regime of, uh, of uh, you know, input into the Drake equation because mm. we might well find what are called biomarkers, indicators that life has taken hold on these planets. That will be a m monumental discovery in itself. But that then actually fills one of the, you know, the slots in the Drake equation. And it may even be possible that, that we might start picking up industrial pollutants in the atmospheres of planets and that tells you that somebody's tinkering around with their environment. Wow. Well, that would be an exciting day. And um, look, I really hope we do. I think it would be yeah. remarkable. It would, would be a watershed moment in the history of the universe, really, um, yeah. from a few from our perspective. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I hope it's I hope it happens soon enough that you and I can still talk about it. Yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be momentous news. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and. Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, uh, back to Earth, um, literally, an eight-centimetre space rock um, has made the news. Uh, what's so special about this one? Uh, yeah, this is... Uh, it's, a, it's basically a, a meteorite that is embedded in rock and that's so so some people are calling this a fossil meteorite uh, it, only in the sense that it actually is in strata that themselves have turned into rock and actually do contain uh, other fossils uh, it is uh, as you said eight centimeters across it's got a lovely name which is Ursta Plana 65 <laughs> Ah, it was, it, found, it was a... found in Scandinavia. By yes, the right, exactly. <laughs> found in Sweden. I can't do 65 in Swedish, but I can do Östeplana. Well, that's <laughs> good Sweden. enough for me. <laughs> yeah, Sweden many times. Um, and it, so th that's because uh, uh, I think it was found, found in a limestone quarry, a quarry where they uh, they produce floor tiles. Oh. And... Um, uh, apparently, in these in these floor tiles, you know, the, 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 basically the flat pieces of rock that they dig out, they find quite a few that have got blemishes in, and they they throw them away. Oh, but it turns God. out that these blemishes are, um, you know, priceless uh, samples of space rock. They're basically meteorites that have landed uh, many many millions of years ago. And uh, and have basically been en embedded in the rock. So See, there's there's, an, there's a new selling point. Oh, that's not a blemish. That's, that's not a right. blemish. That tile um, costs you twice as much because <laughs> because. Yeah. So um, but so what's happened is um, uh, a, a, a discovery team um, uh, actually I think based in Sweden have uh, they've basically gone through the pile of rubbish in this quarry looking for all the ones that they've thrown away because they've got these blemishes. This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, but what they found is one uh, meteorite 
that is unique. Uh, it is the only one of its kind known. Uh, it's, uh, they say it's chemically distinct from any of the other 50,000 meteorites held in collections. Uh, as I said, it's called Ersteplaner 65. Um, and what it suggests is that uh, it was produced when the parent body of the meteorite, which would have been an asteroid, mm. um, was involved in a collision that took place in the, the main asteroid belt, which is between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, about 470 million years ago. Um, now, how can you be so precise about something? Uh, it's because a lot of other meteor meteorites are known to have come from this same collision. Uh, there's a very long large class of uh, other meteorites which are known as L-chondrites. A chondrite is, a, is basically a type of meteorite, stony yeah. meteorite. And uh, those L-chondrites are also found in significant quantities in the same sed sediments of the, uh, 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 that, that's being uh, excavated in this quarry. Um, it's, a, it's a period known as the Ordovician. It's a, a well-recognized geological period in Earth's history. Uh, the Northern Hemisphere was mostly underwater then, and um, the trilobites, marine life forms, which are very well known, were flourishing at that time. Uh, so they've, they've discovered many uh, fossil, uh, fossil, in inverted commas, meteorites within this quarry, more than 100 of them. But there is one, and it's number 65, uh, which stands out because... Uh, it has a different chemical signature, specifically it's oxygen and chromium uh, that have uh, different what we call abundances. Okay. Um, and so um, the, the quotation from the, the, the head of the team, uh, Dr. Birger Schmitz, uh, is uh, we've been hunting these Ordovician meteorites for 25 years. We found 50, then 60, then 70, and it was getting boring. Uh, <laughs> Then in 2011, we found one meteorite that was entirely different. For a long time, we called it the mysterious object because it didn't resemble anything. For five years, we've done all types of analysis and now we're certain of what it is. And it, it's uh, basically um, comes, uh, it's a rock that they have demonstrated by a process called cosmogenic dating. That sounds pretty wow. good. That's good uh, yeah. But it, it, it basically tells you how long a fresh surface of a broken object has been exposed to the radiation in space. It's okay. A, yes. it's, it's actually a very neat technique. Even uh, I understand but, that. Yeah, by doing that, they've, they've uh, worked out that this object, that the meteorite, comes from the other object in the collision that produced all these boring ones. <laughs> uh, so this is something that banged into another asteroid, quite different, two quite different asteroids. One of them was probably bigger than the other and produced all these um, um, standard Ordovician meteorites, the ones that the, uh, Dr. Schmitz uh, described as boring. But the object that did the colliding, that ran into it, um, is probably a smaller object and that is chemically different, and that's what has now been identified. So um, my, my view of this, Andrew, is that it's just astonishing mm. um, that you can do this kind of um, forensic analysis on something that happened 470 million years ago, deep in the asteroid belt, and work out pretty well what happened. Yes, and, and um, I, I suppose it poses more questions about uh, the, the formation of the... The, the galaxies and the and the solar systems and the planets and uh, you know finding something unique like this is yeah. um, it would have been one in a yeah. uh, sextillion 
I could imagine. be a sextillion. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. I'm, I'm sure they'll be doing more work to try and understand it uh, down the track, and we, we may hear more. Indeed, I hope we do. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Uh, to our final topic today, Fred, and we're focusing on the moon. In fact, uh, private companies uh, want to go there, uh, but they're running into issues uh, that do not surprise me at all, uh, known as bureaucracy. And, <laughs> uh, and even though it appears there are no regulations surrounding private companies going to the moon, that's what's stopping it. Is that right? It, it, that's right. It's, it's a problem. So um, you, you're quite right that um, what has highlighted this, this issue is a company, uh, they're Florida-based, they're called Moon Express, and they have put in a request to the US government to land a spacecraft on the moon in 2017. Now, um, the company itself uh, is not saying why they want to go to the moon or what they're proposing or you know what hardware they're using to get there. All they've done at the moment is put in a request uh, that um, is, is saying we want to go to the moon. Well, even a bureaucrat would go, hang on, that's setting off alarm bells. You want to go somewhere, but you don't want to tell us why or what you're going to do that, when you get there. Well, that's there. right. But, but the problem they're facing, well, they might have told, they've probably told the US government what they Yeah, maybe. Mm. But they're not doing it in media releases. So the problem they're facing is that the legislation, uh, at least within, um, within the US, to, to take spacecraft beyond just what we call low Earth orbit, so the vicinity of the Earth, actually out to geostationary orbit. In other words, the kind of commercial, the place where the commercial sector operates with communication satellites and things like that, the legislation to take things beyond that sector does not exist at the moment um, because... So far, only um, government agencies have flown spacecraft beyond this low, uh, beyond this Earth orbit region. Yeah. Um, and it, it does include quite a few. The, um, you know, the, the Indians have sent um, spacecraft to the moon. Uh, of course, the Chinese have as well. Yeah. Uh, US, uh, USA, Russia. Uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union, uh, the, 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 all, all have a track record in, in flying spacecraft. And, and ESA, the European Space Agency, of course, also uh, roams the solar system with its with its spacecraft, but no uh, privately based corporation has yet been able to do that, and there's no legislation to allow it to happen. Well, it's got to change, then, hasn't it? I mean, um, indeed, it, you can't it, really stop these people from wanting to explore or do whatever it is they want to do. So it's a it's a case of creating a set of rules and regulations that work for everybody. In, good, indeed, and, and good luck with that. Yes, that's right. I mean, there are, you know, as well as um, uh, Moon Express, there are there are two. We know um, you and I have spoken before about two companies which want to mine asteroids. So um, mm. they they too are setting up to try and do this kind of thing, but are finding um, probably the same sorts of problems, uh, large obstacles because of this lack of regulations. To, to, uh, to, to, to govern activities in space. Um, space law, by the way, Andrew, is based on the uh, 1967 International Treaty, the, the uh, Outer Space Treaty, it's called. And it had uh, 
a few extra bits and pieces tacked onto it in the 1970s. But all of that legislation dates from a time when basically there were two superpowers exploring space, and that was it. There was uh, nobody else involved and certainly no commercial sector uh, activities taking place. The first commercial spacecraft were pretty well on the heels of that regulation, but it's still now, looking from our perspective in 2016, it looks pretty clunky and pretty out of date. Um, But this ties in to another story that um, I I was reporting on recently, and that is that there are other countries now which are looking forward at the idea of building their own frameworks of legislation uh, in order to encourage uh, companies to base themselves in those countries. Most notably, the the state of Luxembourg in Europe uh, wants to do this. They are very keen to encourage uh, space companies to to come and set up in Luxembourg. And their government has said that they will uh, basically draft and build and enact legislation that would support that kind of activity. Now, how well you can do that just as an individual country without taking a global view of it, because space is a global business, yes. is, is, is an interesting point in itself. But the, um, yeah, but the, 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 the issue uh, with Moon Express really has highlighted uh, a, a, an issue within the, um, w- within the USA. Uh, the, there is a, a legal expert in, um, yeah, I think, the Federal, Federal Aviation Authority in, in America who's quoted as saying, what's being looked at right now is a Band-Aid fix because the system is broken. Um, and that's, uh, that's the bottom line. You've got to get things put together in order for these um, entrepreneurs and uh, the, the agencies that do want to explore space in order for them to be able to do that and to do it legally. It's almost like tax law. We um, we tend to be always behind when, in terms of legislation when it comes to dealing with with change, and, yes, and that, that, space seems right. to be exactly the same. Uh, I suppose you can uh, look at the technology of the '60s, and there were only superpowers were capable of of launching rockets to right. take yeah. men and equipment into space and yep. to the moon and beyond. Now. 50 years later, it is much easier. And uh, it's yeah. reached a point where it's almost doable at a much lower cost um, by by people who just have the, the capital and the infrastructure to do it. And they don't have to be governments. That's right. Uh, exactly right. There's a, there's a very nice quote from the, the head of Moon Express, uh, a man called Bob Richards. He says, no commercial company has ever asked to go outside of Earth orbit and go elsewhere before. We're a pathfinder out of necessity. Mm. Well, as I tend to say, we will watch with interest because this is probably the the next big phase in in exploration and uh, probably space tourism. Who knows? But uh, I'd love to know why they want to go there. That's that's got me buzzing. (laughs) <laughs> mm. All right, well, we, we may find out sooner or later. We Fred, may. always good to talk to you. That wraps us up for another week. Sounds great. And good to we'll talk to you too, Andrew. Catch you next time uh, on Space Nuts. Um, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll have another podcast for you next week. In the meantime, keep an eye on our Facebook page. We're always putting updates there. You can follow us on Twitter and don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Spread the word. We're on iTunes and a bunch of other uh, uh, 
podcasting platforms. Thanks for your company. See you again next time. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.